Welcome to episode 18 of the Operational Arch. We have a conversation with Dr. Jonathan Abel, Department of Military History, CGSC, and discuss the man and the myth behind the upcoming movie, Napoleon. The French look at that and say, hey, we need to do that. We got beaten up by the Prussians in the Seven Years' War. We need to be more like them. So after the Seven Years' War, the French turn around and say, we need to adopt army-wide doctrine. Hello, welcome to the Operational Arch, bridging the gap between strategy and tactics and the official podcast of the School of Advanced Military Studies, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm Lieutenant Colonel J.D. Corliss, alongside Major Brian Lander. With us today is Dr. Jonathan Abel, an associate professor at U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College. Dr. Abel received his undergraduate degree from Midwestern State University and received his Ph.D. from the Military History Center at the University of North Texas. He is an award-winning author and has a number of publications to his credit, in particular a series titled History Versus Hollywood. As a professor at CGSC, he has helped shape field grade officers for years in the Department of Military History and as the chair of the MMAS program. When not educating Army officers in French, Greek, and Roman military history, you can find him on the podcast, A Confused Heap of Facts. Dr. Abel, thank you very much for being with us today uh, with the upcoming movie on Napoleon. Uh, there's going to be a lot of, of questions and discussions surrounding his legacy, both good and bad, and we understand that you have an interest in Napoleon. We'd like to kind of pick your brain, share your thoughts with our listeners today. Yeah, it's good to be here. Uh so honestly, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, we were kind of talking before we started recording just, you know, some of the, the other historical movies that we like. And, and, you know, I always look forward to the next kind of Ridley Scott historic flick. So yeah, I'm, I'm personally looking forward to it. Brian, what about you? Uh, I am. I am as well. Uh, I'm not as well versed in history, but uh, sir, are, I assume you're excited, just as excited as, as we are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Napoleon is a great topic for film. Um, I don't think we make enough movies about French history in general or about him specifically. Really, if you discount European series and movies, the last big Hollywood movie about Napoleon was the Waterloo movie from the 70s, right? So it's been a while. Uh, and now we have CGI to do battles right, right? You don't have to rent out the Soviet army to, to have battles. Uh, my one concern so far, I like what I saw in the trailer. My one concern is Joaquin Phoenix just looks too old. Like, the scenes of him throughout most of the trailer, he's supposed to be, Napoleon's supposed to be around 25, mm -hmm. and Joaquin Phoenix looks like he's 90. Um, so there's there's kind of a visual. Like, I, it wouldn't surprise me if they didn't go back and de-age him well, in some of those scenes. I think at 25, I probably looked about the same. Yeah. So we'll, yeah. we'll see. So, some of us might have, but that's just, it's kind of jarring because the scene where he's with Josephine, right? Yeah. In, in the film, the I don't know how old the actor is playing Josephine, but she looks like she's 25. She's supposed to be in her late 30s mm -hmm. at that point. In oh, wow. Life. And he is supposed to be in his, in his early to mid-20s. Uh, as I said, she looks 25 and he looks 90. So there's a, there's a kind of a visual, yeah. Yeah, complete flip of the, right. the age difference there. I, I don't think they're going to get her teeth right as well, I think, from where she was from. No. We do, that's one thing you can always tell in historical movies. They never get the teeth right because they should all be missing teeth and the rest of their teeth should be terrible. But <laughs> good luck getting right. Hollywood to do that. Right. Yeah, absolutely, sir. Yeah, we'll we'll get to the we'll get to more about the trailer here in a minute. I, we want to start off with kind of like, all right, who was Napoleon? You know, where did he come from? What what was the his, the history of Napoleon? And then we'll talk to what what Hollywood has kind of done or not done with him. So, I, I want to start with just like the first question. Mm -hmm. All right, this is on Napoleon's legacy. Was he was he just that good? Was he the genius that we want him to make him out to be, or or is he just like the right man at the right moment, at the right time? 
I like all of the answers. Uh, I will be a bad American in saying the answer is both. Um, we want it to be one or the other, right? Because we want absolutes, then we want to power rank and fight about the absolutes. Um, but the reality is it's both, right? Uh, we like Napoleon I because he's the prototypical romantic hero. He is Alexander. He is Caesar. He is the person who drives, uh, however you want to look at it, he drives an army to greatness or to killing lots of people. He drives a society to conquest, power, or you know, tyranny, again, depending on how you want to look at it. And, and on top of that, not only is he kind of that prototypical romantic figure, he also comes at a time of great historical drama, right? The French Revolution is the world historically important event that takes place in the early modern era between the Protestant Reformation and, you know, whatever you want to define modernity as, right? The rise of communism, the rise of modern industry, nuclear weapons, whatever. The French Revolution is the one between that. And for many people, Napoleon kind of embodies the French Revolution, both, both positive and negative. So I think that's why we're so attracted to him as a person. Now, we in, in military and military history and military-adjacent spaces, we like him because he really was a military genius. And he, he, he did things and created systems and won battles in ways that are really instructive for us. And we like things we can put our finger on and say, this person changed this thing in a way that we still use. Versus sussing out, you know, where did the brigade actually come from? That's a really important idea, but it's, it's an idea with many fathers, whereas with Napoleon, it's easy. You can just point to him and say, hey, he did these things. He created the core, as we'll talk about. So we like that, too. We like that it's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of a vanishing point, to use a, an art metaphor. So that, that's a great lead-in. Uh, because talking about Napoleon, and we've already had several classes on him here at Sam's, you know, we kind of do that finger pointing and say, all right, here was the beginning of the operational level of war. Do you agree with that assessment? Or or was that one of those things that was kind of inevitable? Things were going to go in that way, and he just happened to be there in the moment. I So I agree with it, but with a very important asterisk on it. Um, and that asterisk is, it's not the beginning of the operational level of war, because I can find you many examples of Roman armies that operated on the strategic and operational level, right? Uh, I would say it is the rebirth of the operational art for Western Europe, right? The, the rebirth. Rebirth. So the, the, we were already doing this in the past, kind of forgot so about it. The Greeks it. and Romans did it. Um, you, could, there, you could find medieval campaigns where it's happening. Uh, my colleague, Dr. John Hostler, would love to tell you about the Crusades and uh, the operational art of the Crusades, right? Uh, the Mongols, some of the same stuff. Uh, but there is, there is kind of a move away from it in the late medieval, early modern era. And then Napoleon comes back in, and he adds a layer to military structures and functions that really does enable Western European armies and then their children, right? And we are, as Americans, are children of Western Europe that enables their militaries to operate more effectively on the operational level. Uh, and, and we can talk about how the core, which is Napoleon's his great uh, structural innovation, we can talk about how that really is a major step in the process of kind of rediscovering the operational art and the operational level. Well, yeah. Well, let's get into it then. Like, well, how does how does the core help bring about the operational level then? Yeah. So, 
the way I would describe it is, if you look back over Western European military history, again, uh, post-medieval, right? We don't, we don't need to go back before uh, 1500, because that's, that's a different story. Um, but, but if we go from 15 forward, 1500 forward, it, it, really what militaries do is they create more discrete formations at higher levels, so if we look at the kind of army that fought uh, what, are, what are called the Italian Wars of the Habsburg-Valois Wars, of basically the first half of the 16th century, those armies are pike-and-shot formation. They have some artillery with them, but they're more siege guns than anything. Those are largely proprietary armies. Those are armies that states hire from countries like Switzerland to fight their campaigns and wars, sometimes for no more than a season, sometimes for multiple years. They necessarily hold command and control at low levels, right? So the highest level is the company, small c, and by company, understand that could be a core size formation, but it's a literal employed company of people. What happens in the next couple centuries in Western Europe is that governments start taking more and more control over militaries. So we move from what's often called the, the proprietary or the contractor state, pre-1700, or the entrepreneurial state, to one where governments now own the militaries in the 18th century. And as that happens, as militaries are professionalized, we create higher and higher echelons. So I study the French army, and up until the, the late 18th century, the largest official echelon in the French army, now understand when I say official, was the regiment, because regiments were owned by colonels. So, lieutenant colonel, you would own a regiment, and you would pass that regiment to your son when you retired. Because of that, they couldn't create higher-level echelons, because then you'd be stepping on the literal proprietary nature of the unit. Well, the Prussians come along, and they have kind of already harnessed their nobility to the state. It's more complicated than that, but that's the easy explanation. And under Friedrich II, who's frequently called Frederick the Great, uh, the Prussians create these higher echelons. They create brigades and divisions in ways that we would recognize them. These are prerequisites for the operational level of war, right? We're still at the level of tactics with, with smaller units. The French look at that and say, hey, we need to do that. We got beaten up by the Prussians in the Seven Years' War. We need to be more like them. So after the Seven Years' War, the French turn around and say, we need to adopt army-wide doctrine. Everybody's going to march at the same pace. Everybody's going to use the same drill manual. Everybody's going to do things the same way. And then in 1787, they formally create divisions. They're, they're not all arms, but they're combined arms divisions. The revolution comes along, and it creates formal divisions and informal core. So what we're doing is we're increasingly stratifying up the echelons, yeah. right? So once you create those building blocks, once you get to the revolutionary armies where Napoleon first takes command, then you've got increasingly articulated formations at higher levels. And once you have formal combined arms divisions, then you can start thinking about the next level up. And that's what Napoleon does. He takes a couple of armies, and he creates these kind of ad hoc formations that may or may not be core. There's a lot of debate about it. 
and he wins his his first two wars uh, in Italy. Uh, we'll leave the Egypt one to the side because he <laughs> left it to the side. Right. <laughs> right. So then there's this period of peacetime, and he can actually reshape the army, and that's when he creates the All Arms Corps with a staff, with transport, with medical, with signal, plus you know the 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 heavy lift of the infantry, cavalry, and artillery. So something we would recognize. Today. Yes. Yeah. And that's of course the predecessor of the modern corps. Now I would suggest a Napoleonic corps is probably more akin to a modern division, but that's that's something for the practitioners to sort out. Um, but it's the same it's the same idea, a unit that can fight autonomously, not independently, because a unit that can fight independently is an army, but a unit that can fight autonomously, so that you can push the articulation to a higher level of war. And so Napoleon builds on the building articulation. And if Napoleon hadn't created the Corps, somebody else would have. It's a natural evolution. But what Napoleon does really well is he drives the Corps. He takes the Corps and he lays the Corps out. And, you know, famously in the, the Almausterlitz campaign, he's got Corps strewn from North Germany all the way to Switzerland. And they're the ones that are converging on Mac at Ulm on the Danube. And it's that articulation, it's the structural articulation that enables the operational level of war because he can then take that and he can have them you know, famously march divided and then converge and mass to fight united. So that way, operations are enabling tactics and tactical victories. And of course, that nests with his higher strategy. Sir, that's... That's very interesting, and some of the things that we've we've discussed is this this idea of the strategy of the single point. Is that something you think Napoleon was familiar with? That was always his purpose or his primary uh, strategic aim, or, or was there something else that was driving him? Yeah, so uh, there's a good new chapter in the New Makers of Modern Strategy written by my doctoral advisor, uh, Dr. Mike Legiri, who argues exactly this point, that Napoleon's strategy was the strategy of the single point. Uh, what I would say is yes and no. Um, and you're going to get a lot of these answers from me today. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> so yes, in the sense that if we look at the army Napoleon is with, Napoleon thinks in this very Jominian way. And, and Jomini talks about these points. In, in French, it's point d'appui, point of effort. We call those cogs, centers of gravity, because we've taken the Clausewitzian term and applied it to a Geminian, in a Geminian way. So what, what Napoleon did was he wanted to drive into enemy territory and take the operational offensive using his articulated formations, force the enemy into a bad position, and then Napoleon would take the tactical defense if he could and let the enemy make mistakes. And the way I teach this to students is you want your enemy to make more choices because you're the genius and they're not. So the more choices they make, the more mistakes they make, right? So if you're looking at the army Napoleon's with, absolutely. He does the Clausewitz thing. Actually, Clausewitz is describing what Napoleon did. Drive at the enemy capital, smoke their army out, defeat their army. After the defeat, find their head of state wandering around the battlefield and make him sign a treaty. Right? This is Austerlitz. Mm -hmm. However, if you zoom out, what you see is it's not a single point. Right. So on the tactical operational level, Napoleon didn't care about tactics because he had people to do that for him. Right. He's an army commander. On the operational level, single point, absolutely. Strategic level, multiple lines of effort. So if you look at the Almausterlitz campaign again, 
Napoleon has the Grand Armée on the Rhine to the Danube, through the Danube, up into what is now Czechia. There's another army operating in Italy under Marshal Massena. And in fact, it's opposed by Archduke Karl. And I, it's, I think we pretty well accept now that that's the coalition's main effort in Italy. So it's not a strategy of a single point. It's Massena hold in Italy while Napoleon does the strategic penetration. So it's kind of like a block and penetrate. Now, in reality, not only does Massena hold, he beats Karl, and then he pushes Karl back into Hungary. There's another army on the north coast in uh, what basically what is now Westphalia that's guarding against a push across the North German plain, but also a British landing, mm -hmm. right? So it's not a single point on the strategic level. It's only on the operational level that you see that idea of a single point. Remember, Napoleon is both commander-in-chief and the head of state, right? So he's thinking on all of these different levels at the same time. In some ways, yes, single point, but at the strategic level, you, I mean, you, can't, you just can't afford to do that. You have to think on multiple lines of effort at the strategic level. So he's thinking about this. How well did he communicate that? How well was, I can't imagine that we have a lot, but how, how well do we understand his ability to communicate that strategy, that, that, those concepts holistically to his subordinates? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we have a lot of understanding of that now, especially because the Fondation Napoleon in, in France has recollected his correspondence, and they've reissued it in, I think, 15 volumes of the last five years. Um, it's 30% larger than the old 19th century printed version that Napoleon III put together. So we have all of his letters, and you can read through them. Now, you have to read French, of course, but you can read through them and see how his operations process worked and see how he's issuing orders. Now, what we have to understand about Napoleon is uh, a couple of things. One, he did not have a modern staff. He did have a staff, but it's not a modern staff. The modern staff exists, uh, I, I think it's not unfair to say, the modern staff exists primarily for planning and then execution right? Mm. Napoleon's staff did not plan. Napoleon's staff existed to push information to him, in particular maps, and then to execute his plans, right? The planning took place in Napoleon's head. So when Napoleon issues an order, uh, there's, a, there's a great passage in Germany where he talks about how Napoleon issued an order. When Napoleon issues an order, it's basically, go here, do this, and if there's another unit near you, cooperate with them in this way. And then he sent that to his chief of staff, Berthier, and Berthier looked at all the maps, and he added data to it to say, okay, go here and do this with these forces in this way, uh, taking this position, and second corps to your right, coordinate with them in these ways. So Berthier is the filter. Berthier filters what Napoleon is saying in a way that the subordinates can make sense of. That's why Napoleon was so incompetent at Waterloo, because Berthier was dead. So when, when he issues orders, you can tell what he's thinking, but it might confuse a modern person, because they're used to uh, the very... Uh, prescribed, I guess is the right word, staff processes we have now. I mean, we have doctrine about how staff processes work, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, everything, all of that went, in, went on in his head. So when he issues orders, it's an execute order, not a help me plan order or, or, or something that might look more like the modern uh, orders and staff process, if that makes sense. It does. Yes, sir. 
So uh, with that in mind, does he have, he has a trusted assistant. It sounds like he had a trusted assistant. How, how much did he uh, rely on him beyond that, beyond just translating that? And then additionally, how did he, or did he mentor his subordinates to do these things and think the way he thought? Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question in, in two parts. So Napoleon is incredibly fortunate to have had Berthier. Berthier is his chief of staff. Um, Berthier is a long service. Uh, he's an, an old soldier. He actually fought in America in the early part of his career. Um, and he was gifted to Napoleon by the revolutionary armies. He's not somebody Napoleon cultivated. And so Berthier is an absolutely necessary part of the process. And Napoleon has these in other ways, too. So Berthier is his chief of staff with the army, but he has a chief of staff in his government. It's a, it's, he's a man named Cambacere, and Cambacere is one of these he's just completely faceless, devoted bureaucrat. Cambacere is the power behind the throne, but not in the way that, like, he's not Iago. He's not trying to take the throne. He's, he's absolutely loyal to Napoleon. Um, he's got other people in other places who are not as loyal, like Fouché, his, uh, his head of police, who, who is critically important in sniffing out dissent, in issuing propaganda. Um, Fouché was also incredibly corrupt. He was on the take. Uh, he occasionally tried to overthrow Napoleon, but Napoleon got over it. Um, and then, of course, there's Talleyrand, right? Uh, Talleyrand is the foreign minister. Talleyrand understands diplomacy. He can talk to other people. Um, but he is also a traitor, and Talleyrand is one of the people who masterminds Napoleon's overthrow both times. So eventually, Napoleon fires him in 1809. Um, so he has these point people in all of these different bureaus. And we forget, yes, Napoleon is a, a genius at war, but he's also a genius at administration. I mean, one of the examples Napoleonists like to use, if you go to the Anvalide, where he's buried, there are friezes around him that depict the accomplishments of his life. Only one of them is related to the military. Hmm. The rest are administrative. He was as proud of the Concordat with the Catholic Church or the Code Napoleon, the law code, as he was of his military victories. So we tend to forget that when you know we're, we're in a military education institution. Um, but the, the other side of this, so, so yes, he's a genius. He has geniuses who work under him. But the other side of this is uh, he was terrible at cultivating successors and subordinates. It's, it's pretty fair to say, with a couple exceptions, the people who did well in his military service w did so not because of Napoleon. They did so because Napoleon takes power after a decade of war. And as we know, war is a great winnower of talent, right? So a person like Messina, Messina was not Napoleon's subordinate, even though Napoleon's the emperor in 1805 and Messina is the marshal. Messina is Napoleon's equal. In fact, if you want to go by precedence and date of rank, Messina predates Napoleon, hmm. right? The, there are exceptions to that. Um, so Davout. Davout is a cavalry officer of no account when Napoleon makes him a marshal. We still don't know why he did. Turned out to be one of his best marshals. Uh, Suchet kind of forced his way through the ranks. But on the other hand, for every Davout and Suchet, you've got several people like MacDonald who were promoted well past the point of their competence. Um, Ney, great example. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my mentor, Mike Legere, loves to say, show me a Napoleonic battle, and I'll show you Ney screwing something up. Right? <laughs> yeah. If you want a rear guard commanded, you call Ney. If you want anything done in a good way, you don't, you don't call Ney. 
but he has to rely on Ney. Mm-hmm. You know, it's he's down at Waterloo. Ney's commanding the cavalry very ineptly. Um, so it's a double-edged sword with Napoleon. So there was no talent marketplace or aim cycle for the Napoleonic army? There was a talent marketplace. The problem was the talent marketplace was Napoleon's family. Um, <laughs> and he so his cavalry commander, Murat, married into his family, eventually became the king of Naples. But he had a habit of put, putting his brothers on thrones. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's fair to say none of his family members, none of his male family members was competent to sit on a throne, even though most of them did. Now, if he could have put some of his sisters on thrones, they would have done much better. But he ha- he had this Corsican Italian attachment to family that mm-hmm. it just didn't serve him very well. How much did that that history influence his actions? I, I I've read a little bit, it, you know, heavier influence in the beginning, and then he he sort of let it go. I don't know if that's something that you've seen as well, or you you agree with? Yeah. So Napoleon was Corsican. Um, Corsica is an interesting place in the 18th century, right? It's nominally owned by the Republic of Genoa, but Genoa treats it like a colony. Uh, it's, it's sparsely populated. I think it's, there's 100,000 people on it in, in the, most of the 18th century. Uh, it's, it's got a series of on-and-off insurgent wars as the, the Corsicans try to win their independence. Um, classical insurgency. The towns are held by the Genoese, the very rugged interior, mountainous interior, that's where the insurgents are, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a problem anybody would recognize from, from coin. Napoleon is a committed Corsican nationalist growing up. Mm-hmm. So France buys Corsica in 1768. It destroys the native insurgency the next year, the, the insurgency of Pasquale Pauli. Pauli goes off to England, where all deposed leaders go. Uh, and, and Napoleon's at school in France later. So he's born three months after the treaty is signed uh, in, in 1769. So he grows up as an outcast in French officer school. He, has, he speaks terrible French. He's got an Italian accent, a Corsican accent at that, which is, it's like, it's kind of like the equivalent of a real thick Southern accent today. Um, so he's marked out. He doesn't really have any friends in school. He's an ardent Corsican nationalist. When the revolution starts, Pauli comes back. Napoleon kind of cozies up to him. Napoleon's father, Carlo, had been one of Pauli's main supporters, right? There's a rumor that Pauli was his real father. But he's turned off very quickly by Pauli. Pauli is a magnetic figure. He's another one of these romantic heroes. Pauli is just, he's just kind of on the take. So that turns sour for Napoleon after this kind of fiasco of an invasion of of, uh, Sardinia. Uh, so he goes back to France, and at that point, he there's there's I forget the exact passage, but he basically writes that he like he took off his Corsican clothes and put on French ones, right? Now this does come back later when some of his critics, like Germaine de Stael, say that he was never French to begin with, um, and they kind of blame him as this outsider who who convinced the French to follow these Italian dreams. Um, so that's you don't see that much anymore, but that was a line of critique in the 19th century. I think. This concludes part one of our discussion with Dr. Abel on Napoleon. We will pick up in two weeks' time with more on Napoleon and the upcoming movie. Stay tuned for more. The views and expressions heard here are those of the authors and do not reflect the official position or opinions of SAMS, the U.S. Army, or the U.S. government. Stay up to date on all things SAMS by checking us out on Twitter at U.S. underscore SAMS, Instagram at us.sams and on LinkedIn. 
Additionally, if you have recommendations for an episode or wish to engage with us, please email us at operationalarch at gmail.com.